Good afternoon and welcome to the Dungeon Musings Podcast. My name is Kevin Madison and I will be your friendly Dungeon Muser for today. Today, uh, it is, let's see here, Friday, March 8th. Uh, So happy uh, International Women's Day uh, for those who may be listening contemporaneously or belated. Happy International Women's Day for those who are listening uh, after the fact. Um, Today, I have been, uh, well, I've seen some development in the ongoing campaigns that I've been running. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit about that today, and I want to talk about um, a different approach I'm taking to planning for new campaigns, um, because I've got, uh, I've kiboshed one campaign, and I've, re- uh, I've rejigged the date for another one, and um, I've had an, um, yeah, I'm in the, in, in the process of, of planning a replacement campaign for the Delta Green campaign that uh, we've uh, put the pin in. Uh, or stick, stuck the fork in. I think I'm mixing metaphors here. So let's get out of the intro and get into the actual episode. Maybe I can get more uh, cohesive thoughts. So uh, let's go. Okay, so um, last time I recorded, I talked about the status of the different uh, games I was running in 2019. I talked a little bit about uh, uh, stress I was feeling in terms of um, how much... Uh, or how many uh, games I was running and how much work was involved. And, uh, and a bit of... Um, not the lack of engagement, but well, I mean, yeah, the the lack of engagement I was feeling with the Delta Green campaign, and uh, to a degree with the uh, Warhammer campaign. So, since the um, the Warhammer uh, Fantasy uh, role play campaign, Fourth Edition, that I was uh, I'm running. Uh, so, since the last episode, uh, what's happened is I have actually um, I've canceled uh, or at least uh, ended the Delta Green campaign. I, uh, you know, after a lot of reflection, I kind of realized. Or recognize, I should say that it just the, the game itself really just wasn't um, wasn't exciting me. You know, like I mean, I uh, I had mentioned to my players in in sort of the the ra- the email I sent to them, letting them know um, that I was canceling the game and my my ra- reasons for doing so um, is and part of it was that you know for the last two months uh, since um, February or since uh, twenty nineteen has started. Uh, I've had effectively, you know, that entire time, Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerers of Hyperborea and Pathfinder First Edition and Starfinder sitting next to my bedside. And I've been grabbing them, and my, my uh, Barrow Maze book as well. I've been grabbing those and reading them like crazy and, you know, dreaming up all sorts of plans uh, with, with those books. And, um, you know, like even like, you know, grabbing a bestiary and reading a bestiary uh, to, you know, think of, of things I could uh, do with, with those things. Not even necessarily with a plan in mind, just kind of reading them and letting my mind kind of, uh, you know, um, my mind work in terms of uh, what could possibly come. You know, I guess free associating is maybe a way of, uh, of thinking uh, about that process. And I did not find myself doing that with Delta Green. I didn't even finish reading the, the um, Marshall's Handbook or whatever the, the uh, DM's Guide is called for that. And it's not because it's not a really, really cool product. It's just not clicking with me right now. So... So anyway, I mean, the the way things um, stand right now is uh, that game is uh, is gone, um, and uh, leaving our Wednesdays, our alternate Wednesdays, open. And uh, for the last, uh, gosh, I mean, the last like two or three years, we've had regular Wednesday sessions that we've been streaming on the YouTube channel. That um, 
uh, that have been, you know, for the most part, two different players, uh, Steve and uh, Jeff, who those who may be familiar with the uh, YouTube channel or the Dungeon Musings YouTube channel will know those two players because they're on my, you know, on the stream all the time. So, uh, so I really didn't want to give up Wednesdays as a regular day. Um, what I wanted to do is switch it to something that was both uh, a game that I actually was really felt engaged with, but also something that I could realistically manage. You know, this year, my day job um, has just been fucking crazy busy. Uh, like, I have... Uh, we had someone, for those who may be uh, unfamiliar, my, my day job, and kindly don't hold this against me, uh, is as a lawyer. Uh, I work as a uh, an insurance defense lawyer, so uh, when uh, someone is injured in uh, an action, I act as uh, the person who says they're not as badly hurt as they think they are. Um, so that's, it's just been very, very busy this year. Uh, and it's, it requires, I normally, um, manage my week by, uh, front loading everything. Uh, so on, uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I, uh, I churn out, uh, the vast majority of the billable hours that I, um, I need to make for the uh, week. And then, uh, that allows me, and then I have a long day on Thursday as well too, but it allows me to sort of half day it on, uh, Friday and then do just a little bit of work on the weekend if I need to and still meet my uh, my billable target. Um, the reason I mention this only is because uh, what that means is that my front part of my week, generally, I don't have time to uh, to really do a lot of preparation. Uh, you know, Sundays are, uh, or the weekends are coming off of either two or three different games that I'm running. Uh, fr- Friday nights, I've been running something every Friday night. Saturday mornings, I've been running something every Saturday morning, and then every second Sunday, I'm running Pathfinder in the afternoon. Now, uh, some of those games require more uh, preparation and more inventiveness on my part uh, than others. Uh, a lot of, I'm running uh, the, for the Pathfinder game a an adventure path, so it's really just there's not a lot of like whole creating stuff from whole cloth. It's me taking the adventure and and uh, making sure that we're making best use of whatever's in there. Same thing for the Starfinder game. Um, and, uh, but, uh, anyways, so because of that, it, I mean, and because I need those early parts of the week, um, uh, to, to get those hours ahead, what I was finding was that by me playing in a fifth edition game on Monday nights, like alternate Monday nights, it was making me stressed out every second Monday because I always had something that was cutting two hours well, to be honest, I'm cutting three or three and a half hours because you know you got to prep beforehand, you chat beforehand, and whatnot. Um, so I was losing those as as part of my billable hours, which then sort of pushed on to making for later days in the rest of the week, and that just um, it was pr- inhibiting my ability or affecting at least my ability to enjoy playing. And I think that certainly had an impact on uh, how I felt about that particular game because I was always going into it with a source of uh, stress. Um, However, I uh, this week I'd, I let the guys know after uh, this week's session that look I can't continue doing this. I need my Mondays to be able to, you know, d- do a solid um, ten-hour billing day on Monday, ten-hour billing day on Tuesday, you know, eight hours on uh, Wednesday, and then um, I can just balance out the rest of the week with the uh, the other necessary hours. So, uh, so that's been a huge. That's been a, a big relief. I'm hoping we're trying to find another date to work uh, for the, uh, or another day of the week to work for that Curse of Strahd game, the D and D fifth edition game I've been playing in. But um, it, it already feels like a load off, ha- not having to, uh, you know, leave my Mondays open. It also means I've got a nice big cushion of about four days between gaming on um, 
at least one day of the week. And it, it's not that uh, I don't love gaming. It's just that you do need some time to, you know, recharge the batteries and you need time to prep and, and stuff like that. And also to free associate. I mean, I, I still have uh, a handful of uh, charity games that are coming, you know, in the uh, coming months. And uh, I, I like to allow lots of time to sort of let those develop in my head. So I've got a real, at least I've got a clear outline as to what those sessions are going to be about before I sit down and start putting pen to paper to uh, to um, to get the actual you know stats and the rule twenty game and whatever else ready for for the session. So um, so what that's meant is that two of the uh, of the games that I've been playing or running in two thousand nineteen are either gone or experiencing some substantial changes. Um, because of that workflow as well too, it, it means that my Wednesdays nowadays need to be minimal minimal prep for me to be able to enjoy them as much as possible. And um, and yeah, I mean, so so that's where we stand, at least in terms of the changes from my last sessions, uh, since my last um, episode. Uh, other things that have changed, actually nothing else has changed otherwise. I, I've still been thoroughly enjoying my uh, all the different games I've been running. Barrow Maze continues to be a lot of fun. Uh, we had a great session last time. I've, I've actually, it's, we haven't played Barrow Maze since the last episode, so... Um, because I had to cancel this past week as well because <laughs> of work. Uh, but that I mean that campaign's going really well. Um, we still got uh, all the players have hit level five on that so far. Uh, so that's pretty exciting. That's that's a lot of uh, a lot of progress for characters that are only about six months old. So that's that's pretty cool. Um, Iron Gods is going really well. Uh, I'm really really enjoying the group for that. I enjoy using Pathfinder for that. I love playing in Numeria, and I think by next session we may see some uh, further uh, development in, uh, in that campaign, and we're, we're going to see the actual Adventure Path storyline kicking off, so that I'm looking forward to that. Um, Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerers of Hyperborea remains the game that I laugh the most through. Uh, I, I just, man, what a, you know, all, I'm fortunate right now to have great groups of players for, for everything, um, and and in a lot of uh, in some of the cases as well too, it's great because I'm playing with people who I, I there's no way I would have met these people in any other context, you know, either because of geographic reason regions or age differences or things like that. So that's been really pretty cool. Um, but the Ash group is just it reminds me so much of of playing with old friends, you know, like the um, we're all of around the same age, we're all sort of the same level of experience with different games, so it's just, it's a hoot playing every time, you know, and uh, we had a really exciting uh, session last time as well, too, that uh, was proved to be pretty challenging and replete with uh, spiders and, and whatnot, so that, that game continues to, to be a real source of joy for me. Starfinder ha- has uh, unfortunately seen someone drop out of the campaign because of a, uh, a real life commitment, which is, you know, I mean, um, it, it, it's unfortunate that, uh, you know, real life gets in the way sometimes, but, um, you know, the, uh, and the player was a, was a great player too. So I'm hoping to see him back as a guest star in uh, future campaigns, but that has a, left a place open. And one of my other regular players, uh, uh from another campaign has actually, uh, asked to join. So we've got someone who is jumping in to fill that, uh, uh, that role. So, that's it's pretty cool. I mean, it's a mixed ble- not mixed blessing, but I mean, it's uh, it's exciting that we we unfortunately lost one player, but we've got a new player and a new character jumping into the campaign, and that campaign is a shit ton of fun. We had our first uh, starship encounter, uh, starship combat encounter last time, 
and uh, it's really crunchy, um, and it reminds me a lot of an old FASA game called Renegade Legion, uh, in the sense that it's using hex grids. Uh, it's not quite as, as uh, complicated as Renegade Legion was, but uh, and, and it definitely has more role-playing um, opportunities in this, but uh, it was a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to doing more space combat, but next session this week sees the characters landing on this planet and trying to figure out what the hell is going on. And I love that group. It's a really good group as well, too. Great role-playing. Um, yeah, so so those are all going really well. Um, and uh, now I find myself planning for the next stage. And I think what I'll do is first talk about... Not the actual game. So maybe I'll... So what, what I'm getting at, or what I want to talk about uh, in the next segment here, is rewards in role-playing games and how to structure them. Because... I watched a really interesting... Um, yeah, so there's a YouTube channel called GDC, which is the D- Game Developers Conference. Something that uh, pertains to video games. But the, their YouTube channel has some really, really interesting talks on them. Um, because, I mean, most of the... I mean, the, the, the talks that are about, like, art or, you know, the marketing side or things like that, that's not of particular interest to me. But the things that are that deal with either, like, game theory or incentives or, you know, structuring story, all of that stuff is fucking great. It's all, you know, a wealth of uh, really terrific uh, information and uh, ideas to, to chew over, mull over in structuring your own campaigns. And most recently I watched an, um, an episode... From it's a guy who worked as a uh, developer and producer on uh, uh, World of Warcraft and then on Diablo, in particular in relation to rewards. So, like you know, the gear. So he's a guy who was responsible for many of the different gear systems that were found in about the uh, early uh, to mid life cycle of uh, World of Warcraft, and then the later uh, post-launch life cycle of Diablo three. So he had some really inter- interesting ideas about rewards, and it really got me thinking about a, an not an issue, but an um, an argument that I've I've kind of had in my head since I read this Twitter chain about using XP as an incentive. So that's maybe maybe I'll talk about rewards next, and then I'll talk about the uh, the possible campaign replacements that I've got for um, uh, for the uh, Wednesday night and the Friday night sessions. Okay, so the the argument that I, I'm referenced in the last segment there, it's with respect to using XP as an incentive. And um, the original chain uh, or Twitter chain that, that sort of sparked this this kind of uh, internal um, debate in me, it was with respect to how old school games would use uh, XP, you know, you'd get uh, XP for loot. So magic items and uh, gear, you'd get loot or XP for, for that stuff in addition to killing monsters. And also that the majority of your XP actually comes from the loot. So it incentivizes loot uh, more so than what um, than just killing monsters. The, the rationale being that as soon as 2nd edition came around and you know, XP for loot became optional, and then with third edition and, and the games going forward, that you didn't get XP for recovering gold or, or treasure, um, that it then changed the incentive to killing monsters as a way of optimizing your XP gain. And, um, you know, for a while, that, it's a persuasive uh, way of thinking about it, and, and it has a, a degree of uh, intu not intuitive, but it, it, I guess, like an intuitive. Um, 
correlation that yeah that makes sense like you if if you get more xp from the gear and whatnot then that that makes sense that they would chase after that the thing i i don't buy about that is that i don't know you know i don't know players i mean players like getting xp obviously but i don't know players who tailor their actions in the um you know in, in the game specifically to to maximize their xp gain in the way that you would with like an MMO or something like that, like a massive multiplayer online role-playing game. Like, you wouldn't be trying to grind, um, you know, uh, trying to grind out a bunch of uh, kills on, uh, you know, boars or something like that because they're, you know, you get more XP from killing in 3rd edition. It just... Uh, then, you know, you would in in um, uh, Fantasy, in an older version of D&D. Uh, instead, I think that all it does is it just... It, what it does is it makes the rewards for recovering a stash of loot all the more um all the better right like when you complete a um uh when you complete a um uh, an adventure and you get a big pile of loot from the monster from the dragon or, or whatever the hell it is and, and you happen to get not only a bunch of gold but also a bunch of xp and may bump a level up that's really fucking great like that feels really good and if you were able to do that without having to slay the monster, all the better. I mean, that, that it's still it, it's the um, the rush of reward. I think that comes from both getting the gear, getting the loot, and seeing your XP going up. But it's two different things that you're getting. And I don't know. I don't think I buy that players are necessarily, you know, setting out to just find uh, always find opportunities to get more. Um, to get loot without having to fight, right? Like, I like the idea that you get XP for um, for defeating monsters, not necessarily killing them. And I mean, that's actually... I, I guess that's the other thing, is that I don't know the, the whole argument of, uh, well, you incentivize loot, and that way it, it, uh, you, know, you get XP from getting the loot as well as getting XP from killing, uh, defeating the monster, but it's way less for defeating the monster, so or killing the monster... So therefore, if third edition post uh, only gives you XP for killing monsters and it's over incentivizing killing, that argument I think is a straw man because all of those editions, third going forward, they don't expressly require you to kill the monster; they require you to defeat the monster. So it's disingenuous to say that uh, oh, you got to bloody you know you got to murder every single thing you meet because that's the only way you get XP. Like that's. That's just not how the game, I, I think, was ever intended to be played third going forward. However, I think it, it's right that um, it doesn't... Because um, it links the reward, the XP rush, from defeating the monsters rather than from the, the stuff you recover, it makes for a... It, it doesn't give you that same rush you get from, uh, uh, from recovering that big horde and also getting a shit ton of XP from it. Um... So that's the, um, the, the, the argument I, I have been kind of having in my head. And uh, then I watched this, um, this uh, lecture on uh, GDC about uh, rewards in, in um, video games. Uh, and uh, all of the, the lessons that are taught in that are equally applicable to D&D-style fantasy role-playing games. Things where you're going to be getting you know, loot and, and whatever else. Because it talks about different ways to incentivize uh, players and to reward players and to keep them engaged in the game. And obviously that one, that type of uh, play, the video game type play, is, is different from a lot of role-playing games, but, you know, part of playing these types of role-playing games 
is getting cool powers and getting cool shit, especially in older ver uh, versions of D&D. The real ways that your character differs from a comparable character at the same level is the loot. You know, so getting random loot, getting cool shit with neat powers that not let you do a bunch of things you, you couldn't or some things you couldn't do before, that stuff is is um, part of the reason that uh, playing those games is so much fun is, is finding that, that cool shit and then being able to use your magic ring or your magic wand or your, you know, whatever the heck it is, magic cloak. Um, and then even applying to more modern games too, like Starfinder has a crap ton of cool gear that is all sort of level based and like setting aside whatever you know issues that that you may have with um, you know reality with linking gear to level. It what it does mean if you're just looking at it in terms of cool shit to find is that that type of game, uh, even though it's a brand new game, has a crap ton of great things you can pepper out there to make the you know finds and those loot finds really really interesting. And the thing that I, that got me thinking about the um, the way I've been thinking about XP rewards, because in the last little while I have been um, awarding XP every in every game I've been playing, or running at, at the end of each session, to make sure players are feeling at least some kind of reward from each session. Um, what this game got, or the talk got me thinking about is different ways to reward that. You know, um, is the XP meaningful enough uh, a reward for players uh, or do they just care about hitting a milestone? Because nowadays, a lot of games, uh, I mean, mo all Pathfinder Adventure Paths have milestone linkings to it. All D&D Adventures for 5th Edition uh, seem to have that same thing as well, too. Um, they're not, they're concerned with more when your player hits that, that tier, that, um, you know, that, uh, that next reward, which is a new level, rather than uh, you know XP, which is just a transition towards that reward. So it's not really the reward itself; it's a it's a step towards the reward. And so, if if we break out the XP as a, and and recognize it as not really the thing the players want, what they want is a new level. Um, and again, assuming you're not doing like tiered. Um, Advancement. Uh, Pathfinder, for those who are unfamiliar, has an optional rule where you can do tiered advancement. It breaks down each level into four different tiers, so it's easier. You can get mechanical differences and, and make changes to your character uh, much more often, four times more often, uh, as you gain, make your way through a level. Which means that you, know, you can dole out those mechanical character advancement or character change options a lot sooner than just waiting for the, brand, you know, the whole level. Uh, in order to do that than you can in other games. That's really kind of difficult to do in 5th edition because it's not easily... You can't easily parse out what the different abilities are for 5th. But but anyway, so, so level gain is one of those types of rewards. And XP, I think, is not really... That's just part of it. You're giving them a piece of the pie rather than the whole pie. You know, the whole pie is is getting a new level. So what other incentives can you give? Whatever things can you... Whatever... What other things can you give to players to give... to To keep them engaged... You know, and to make it feel like they're making progress um, as they are playing through this uh, this game, and you know, just just to uh, to forestall any kind of um, arguments or, or not arguments, but I mean uh, observations that yeah, but if you're making your way through a story, you're making advancement. That's absolutely true. Uh, you are making your way through a story uh, while you're playing the role playing game too. But in a D and D style game, part of that is part of what the expectation of rewards is is loot and cool powers, you know, and uh, so then those are things that need to be 
part of the rewards, not just, hey, we made more advancement through the story, you role-played your character more, you did more things. Um, D&D, and I don't want to get too lost in, in this train of thought here, but d is not a story game, right? at least not alone. You can absolutely play it that way, but if you're playing D&D, uh, or any versions of D&D, as just a quote-unquote story game, and you're not pay- paying attention to level advancement, and you're not paying attention to gear, then you're not really taking advantage of all the things that make up that particular game. Because that's what that whole experience is like. Part of it's role-playing, part of it's getting cool shit for your character, part of it is seeing your character get more powerful and picking new abilities or, or just having access to new abilities uh, if you're playing a character class or a version of D&D that doesn't have those kind of like, hyper-customization that, say, like Pathfinder does or uh, D&D 5th to a degree or D&D 3rd or D&D 4th. So gear, I guess, is that's the natural things gear is another way of rewarding characters and uh in versions of D&D that don't have um readily accessible disposable resources it's harder to provide regular rewards things like scrolls and spells and uh sorry scrolls and potions ointments you know um things like that those are i think great rewards alchemical items if you're playing a version of D&D that has al- al- alchemy um, those are all great ways to give the players get a, get give them a feeling of getting something without um, worrying about it becoming a pain in the butt for you later on because they become you know too big for their britches. Um, and I guess one of the things that you know that uh, was also mentioned in the in the game or in that uh, that talk um, was you know don't uh, players like to feel rich, you know, or, or like to feel rewarded. So just do it, you know, and um, I recently did that in, well, I've done that in a couple things. I've done that in my most recent Pathfinder game, uh, where I gave each character one really badass, you know, uh, uh, item that, that was definitely outpacing their uh, their level. And I did that when we started Pathfinder, our uh, Pathfinder 2nd Edition version of Barrel Maze too. Each character started off with a pretty cool magic item. And the players love that stuff. It didn't, um, you know, it didn't uh, uh, break the game by any means. They still kept chasing after other stuff. But giving them that stuff really, I think, gave, made them invested in the game just a little bit more. It didn't you know, mean that uh, if they had it they, or if they didn't have that, they wouldn't play the game. But it's another little way to encourage further, you know, um, further fun and further engagement in the game if, if you're if you agree that D&D is a, to a degree, a loot-based, you know, game, uh, then giving them what they kind of want, um, not everything, but giving them some of it, that's a great way to really make your players happy and make them feel like, fuck, yeah, we did something here. We got something here. Um, and the other other things are is uh, reputation. So, you know, I, I've talked before on the channel about, or on the podcast, I should say, about... Uh, uh, about um, uh, reputation uh, systems, you know, and um, the one that I'm still uh, that I use is still very much a work in progress. I keep you know changing things, but that is a big way I think uh, to to really provide the players with tangible benefits to show them like, hey, here's a number that is bigger now than what it was before, and if they understand what happens when they hit certain tiers, that is definitely a sense of, of progression and accomplishment. So, you know, getting back to that story aspect, if you have um, a session where there is no combat, so there's no defeating monsters, there's no 
um, or little loot that's recovered. Well, one of the ways to give a tangible mechanical reflection and just to let the players see that number go bigger and make them feel a sense of accomplishment is giving them um, points in, in some kind of influence or reputation. Um, and that's a way of tr mechanically tracking the behavior or the, of the characters in um, you know with the larger world in the fiction or in the uh, the the story the, the story that's happening around the table, and uh, you know the, you you may think that that by quantifying that in terms of uh, flat numbers that they may be taking something away from the role playing, but you know every story game for the most part every story game I'm familiar with the uh, you know, um, Blades in the Dark, uh, a lot of the Powered by the Apocalypse games, um, th all of those track the, you know, things like reputation and influence and whatnot by assigning numbers to them, and they have mechanical effects on the overall game. So, story games which fully embrace that aspect of, like, uh, of the, um, you know, the three tiers that make up role-playing, combat, exploration, uh, role-playing, uh, if they're all about that, even they recognize there needs to be a game component to that where players can see some actual progress beyond just like, hey, I played through a story. And you know what? This is a non-secular, but I wonder if that's part of the reason why my players just were not grokking the Delta Green campaign. And maybe why I wasn't as well, too, is that it's there, there is no other incentive to that game apart from just playing it. And I don't mean this is a critic, uh, you know, critical of, of Delta Green. That's what it is, and that's what Delta um, Call of Cthulhu is. But I think I actually I enjoy seeing that game development or that game um, progression aspect of a game as well, of a role-playing game, where you're seeing mechanical numbers going up. You're seeing access to new abilities. You're accessing and, and gaining new, uh, new loot. And I have not played in a game where influence has played a role, but if I was to play in a game like that, I, I, can, I can tell you I'm the type of player who will you know, jump whole hog into interacting with that particular type of system. So maybe that's another way to... Or I, I know that's another way to incentivize... Um, not incentivize, because I, I don't think it's... The incentive is, a, is an aspect of that, but more reward, you know, looking at the positive uh, result side of that equation, the reward you get by saying, you know, seeing players hit a certain tier with certain factions or whatever you want to call them in, in your game, that has a, a real effect on how the players play. Um, like, for instance, one of my players in the, in the um, Barrel Maze campaign, he did hit a second tier of influence with uh, one of the local factions, the Church of St. Yig. Uh, which is like the, you know, kind of generic uh, good um, god, you know, um, or god of civilization, at least, in uh, the Barrow Maze game. And that player has been... He got a, a neat, uh, you know, ma uh, magic item reward from uh, from hitting that tier, and he got to select from either a magic... or one of two magic items or one of two followers for, for each tier he hit, and he selected that one. And um, he's been using that quite a bit. Plus, he's been role-playing up and, and uh, you know, doing things in-game that further reinforce his connection to the Church of St. Yig. And I don't know, I honestly don't know whether the player is intentionally trying to do that stuff to try and cultivate more reputation or if it's just a consequence that by virtue of being rewarded with that stuff, he's continuing to play his character in that way. 
really, I don't really care which of the two options it is. It's just super cool seeing the player uh, see, or at least his character, interfacing with the NPCs and the fictions in a much more meaningful way. It helps me make those NPCs more believable and credible uh, for the rest of the players and for that player. And it uh, it provides me an outlet for giving rewards when you know without having to resort to okay, you're up another level. Uh, or here's some you know big loot thing. Although I guess in an indirect way, I am providing a loot benefit as well. So, you know the um, the le- the overall lesson that uh, I drew from that uh, from that that uh, talk that I, uh, from uh, GDC about rewards in uh, games really was to get me to reconsider uh, how I was rewarding play at the table. You know, uh, rather than just oh, I guess the other thing is is um, points, you know, or astonishing, uh, it would, depending on what you're calling them, action points, uh, feet points, you know, um, I, I call them astonishing fortune points in my astonishing swordsmen and sorcerers of Hyperborea game, but another way of, of providing in-game incentivizing, uh, in-game resource to be like, hey, that was great stuff, here you go, you know, and um, again, I don't know whether players chase after that stuff in my games uh, because I'm giving those rewards or whether it's just an uh, an unintentional consequence. I mean, it could, it could also be just happy coincidence that I just happen to play with great role players and I'm able to dole out those points. But that's another way of rewarding play that doesn't require me to necessarily, you know, just give a level out. And I've got also this is sort of all the stuff that's been swirling around my my mind lately um, as I'm considering how to structure the next game I'm going to play. Because uh, the next game I want, or not play, but run, because the next game I want to run, I'm actually going to try and transition away from a sandbox and more towards a spiral, which is something that is suggested in um, Mike, um, gosh, what's his last name? Uh, I'll look it up between when I finish uh, this segment and when I (laughs) start the next segment. Uh, Mike Shea, I don't have to look it up. Uh, Mike Shea's Lazy uh, Dungeon Master suggests designing a campaign as a spiral, starting off with one starting point and then only designing kind of like the next, you know, mark out from that story-wise and then see where the players go from that. And then when they go along that route, then you just figure out what the next spokes are from there. But I'm going to talk about that in the next segment. For now, I just want to kind of reiterate the, the ideas that I'm kind of... I'm grappling with right now in terms of rewards. And that's that, you know, in, in role-playing games that are a D&D style of game, you know, and that includes Starfinder, at least I include it, and it would include games like Revised Stars Without Number, anything that's an OSR game or a D20-influenced game, what you probably got access to is levels as the crudest way of rewarding your players, uh, only because it means there's an overall transformation in terms of the raw stats of them, like the mechanics and the numbers that you're seeing on the character sheet, as well as a lot of the abilities that they'll have access to, spells, feats, whatever you, whatever it is they gain access to. So that's the crudest of, of uh, levels, but probably the most significant. Then you also have loot, which again, can have a pretty big impact on the characters, but um, it doesn't, you know, um, it doesn't necessarily... Uh, affect the character as much as, say, what a level does. And with that in mind, that means you can over-reward with loot and not really worry about it breaking the game necessarily. Um, The third I can think of is in-game currency, like um, 
action points or astonishing swords, you know, astonishing uh, fortune points or things like that, things that, that the players can use at the table to affect the gameplay. Um, and then finally, the uh, um, influence, you know, rewarding the characters with tangible numbers that reflect their interaction, their actions that don't have any other clear specific consequence. You know, um, interacting in a cool way with an NPC that isn't a quest giver isn't going to result in any money, probably. It might result in some XP, but more often than not, that's going to be a token amount of XP just because every other, you know, every D&D style role-playing game doesn't, you know, shower you with riches in terms of XP when you role-play with people. However, if you use an influence system, that's a way to do that. You know, if you use an influence system that will reward the players for specifically interacting with NPCs and organizations that are in your in your fictional world, um, that will give them a sense of accomplishment and make those, um, I think, those scenes and those adventures or sessions feel as consequentially rewarding as what the set you know sessions are, where you gain XP, where you gain loot, where you gain a level. Um, it also, I mean, like if a character becomes much more influential and out, you know, outsized from their level in influence, that's not as consequential on the raw numbers. You know, it doesn't mean that there's there's a, a change in the way your players interact with the monsters in the monster manual or whatever you know your bestiary is, uh, the other NPCs you've prepped. It doesn't mean that the the math needs to be adjusted. It just means that the story needs to be adjusted. And who the fuck doesn't want to change their story, right? I mean, that's part of the fun of playing role-playing games is seeing things turn in a way you didn't expect them to. So with that in mind, I mean, I, I guess I'm, I'm beginning to appreciate the greater importance and the greater value of a, an influence system, of something that, constant, that uh, tangibly tracks how the players and or player characters are interacting with the NPCs and the power structures in that game. And that also can have a negative uh, aspect to it as well. You can still reward like negative influence. So the players are like, oh man, we're really pissing off that Thieves Guild or oh boy, we're really pissing off that uh, one noble house. That probably is will feel as consequential and as uh, rewarding for the players and it'll feel like a, tr- a meaningful way of tracking progress as much as what you know, um, gaining a level, or, or not just gaining a level, but gaining XP, gaining loot, that kind of stuff would, would do. So I guess one thing I don't track right now is negative influence, you know, and uh, maybe I need to consider that. And this is, I, in a roundabout way, gets me back to the Delta Green campaign, because in the Delta Green campaign, I was going to be making use of some of the um, rules from the um, Knights Black Agent scheme. Knights Black Agents is basically a um, Jason Bourne meets vampires game. It's a super spies meets, you know, vampire conspiracy things. But one of the cool things that it has in that game is a structure called the Conspiramid. And what it is is basically just like imagine a, a pyramid structure, big at the base, small at the top. And as you're going up, there are reactions from that um, pyramid that are triggered when the players do certain things. So as players get more and more involved with the pyramid, it sets what story kind of reactions will be, and they're progressively worse. What you could do is take the reward structure that you have that I have in place, say, for my uh, positive factions, and flip it and say, this is what happens when, you know, if you're playing the Forgotten Realms. If you're at you know, negative five reputation with the Zentarum, well, they're going to be pissed at you when they see you, but they're not taking, they're not wasting any resources tracking you down. However, if you're at negative 60 with those guys, let's say, and if 60 is a consequential amount, 
then they'll be doing things like regularly putting out bounties on you. They'll be sending out people to fuck with you. Like they'll, they'll be doing meaningful things to really try and shut you down. And that's, I think, pretty cool. Like that, that um, not only does that let the players track, you know, just how much their favorite baddie hates them, it also helps make the world feel reactive and responsive because they're going to be, the bad guys will be doing stuff as well. Um, and it, um, it helps you as a DM kind of structure the game, you know, in a, in a way that, um, that doesn't require you to set out like a story, you know, just an adventure path kind of thing. It, it, uh, could add structure to a sandbox. So, and that's, that's interesting. I mean, maybe that's the way, that's what I need to do in this next campaign is set up like not anti-factions, but like factions and uh, that that can become either allies or adversaries. And the adversaries, as you get, you know, I could even set them up as binary things. So if you help one person, it actually fucks over another person. So you, by if you're deciding to help, say, one of the two rival thieves guilds in town, it's going to put you at odds with a crime family uh, that is another faction. That's a good idea. And I shouldn't really think about using that in my Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea game, because I do have some binary factions in uh, in that city, in the main city, in Tuleborg. So... Anyway, so that's that's kind of what I'm thinking of right now in terms of rewards. Um, now let's turn and talk about the campaigns that are on offer, the things that I'm thinking about potentially running as my replacement for Delta Green. Okay, I took the dog for a walk, and I was thinking about this uh, during the stroll. And there's two things that I think I, I, I need to consider as well in the context of uh, level advancement, and that is... Uh, well, there's, I guess there's two other ways of, two other factors. So here's, here's one factor. One factor is, is if you're playing a version of D&D that has different XP tables for each class, uh, you know, everything up until third edition, uh, and many of the OSR games, if not all of them, um, no, it's, it's many, not all of them. It's many of the uh, OSR games. Uh, they have a separate XP table for every single class, um, and in particular, so my, my two favorite OSR games at present, um, it will come as no surprise for anybody who is a regular listener of the podcast, that Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerers of Hyperborea is my number one favorite uh, OSR game. Um, but a, a very close second is uh, Adventure Conqueror King. Um, and one of the main reasons, uh, there's many reasons I like that game, but one of the main reasons is uh, the ability to custom create classes. Uh, there's great rules in the uh, Player's Companion for creating your own mashup. Like that particular game is uh, derived uh, spiritually, I guess, from the Beckme, the um, version of uh, D&D that had the basic expert companion master and immortal set. Um, the uh, Herd, I think Bruce Herd designed those. Uh, I may be fucking up my geek cred here by if I get that wrong, but uh, I think that's who did that. But anyway, um, the or maybe he just worked on those. I don't know. I got to look it up afterwards. Anyway, the Beckme version um, is what uh, is closer to what that is, and that's one of those versions of D and D where they do not make a differentiation between class and um, uh, race. Your race is part of your um, you know is your your class. However, in that version, in Adventure Conquer King, you know, there isn't just dwarf, there isn't just halfling, there are different uh, classes that reflect the specific abilities of those different classes. So there's like dwarven clerics, but they're not called dwarf cleric, they're thematically linked to dwarves. I think they're called rune priests, maybe? I don't remember, but there's a specific name for that. Um, you know, there is a, uh, effectively, what is a um, elven, you know, mage thief called a nightblade. Uh, in the base book, and uh, 
And that's, I think that's, that's, I, I, first off, I really love that. I love that you custom, you have the option of custom creating precisely the kind of character you want with precisely the abilities you want. And the price you pay for that is that you won't gain XP as fast. And um, I haven't played a game or run a game, I should say, like that in, in a very, very long time. So it's not until, it's, or at least not for a, a long, like an ongoing campaign, more in just like one shots and stuff like that. Uh, but it's in my Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea game where I'm recognizing that, oh, okay, like, you know, the guys who are playing the Warlocks, who are effectively the Warrior Priests, they're advancing at substantially slower a rate than the other player characters, at least so far. So what that means is that uh, those... I mean, the, the trade-off is that the Warlock has got some really badass abilities. I mean, they fight like a fighter, they cast spells like a, a mage... Uh, and they've got a good middle ground hit point that errs more on the side of the warrior than it does on the mage. So it's a pretty they're 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 decent uh, you know tough characters as well too. Um, but the consequence of that is that you know as people are gaining XP um, and it is the traditional XP system. So there's you know it, we're talking about hundreds if not thousands of XP uh, that are awarded each session and then hundreds um, or thousands of, uh, if not tens of thousands of XP needed to uh, to gain levels uh, as you go up. And that is a, an important balancing factor in those games. You know, the characters who ha either have elected to play or happen to play less, you know, diverse and less uh, characters with less special abilities, you know, like the, the plain Jane fighters and the plain Jane thieves, those guys are going up a lot faster than what these more complicated classes are. The rune uh, carver as well, too. He's, he's advancing slower than everybody else. But, the, the you know, again, the trade-off is that you do have a lot of really badass abilities that come with that. Um, so in a game like that, you know, uh, you really... I, it's not fair, I don't think, to adopt a milestone system. You do have to link it to... Uh, to an XP reward, an actual tangible reward, because gaining a level in different classes means different capabilities. You know, um, there there aren't hard and fast rules for starting with higher level characters in uh, Adventure. I'm sorry, in Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea, but there are in Axe in Adventure Conqueror King, and it's a flat XP bonus. You know, it's it's that you start with twenty thousand XP or you start with eighty thousand XP. And you just figure out how far you know that gets you in terms of your of your levels based on what class you're playing and how many kind of cool special abilities you have. So in those cases, I think that um, you know abandoning the XP system altogether just won't work. It it, it uh, creates a a disproportionate incentive to play those more powerful classes. You know, um, because like why not play something that has a whole host of badass abilities? I mean, I guess if it's just not the character that you're going to um, you're, you're going to enjoy playing, then fair enough. But I think that what it specifically does is optimize certain types of characters over others, which is which that specific type of XP system is in, in is designed to mitigate. So there's that system. Um, so that's something that needs to you know you need to consider that in terms of um, how to approach your rewards, I guess, um, because that's that is an important part of that system and it needs to be played properly. Both of those two are because you're playing with so many like tens of thousands of, of XP and whatnot and it links to GP, then the economies in both of those games um, are important. You know, it's important to follow those tables to have the consequences as the designers intended them because both of those games have had, you know, they're the result of very careful iterative uh, design uh, for for both of those. Uh, Axe was the result. Adventure Conquer King was the result of uh, 
I believe it's like 10 years of, of uh, house rules, or if not more. So it's a, it's, uh, it's a huge amount of playtest. And Adventure Conquer, or uh, Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea, not only is it probably a collection of uh, Jeff Telenian's house rules, it's also in its second edition now. So it's, it's, had, it's gone through that uh, published iterative process as well. So the, um, the logic behind the money and logic behind the, the XP gain is, is consistent in both those games. So you do sort of need to at least be abiding. If you don't want to have uh, wholly unintended consequences, you do need to abide by those. However, um, the reward in both of those games, the reward of um, magic items, I still think will not, like if you're, if you're over-rewarding your players, it will not screw up the system. You know, uh, you can only gain one level per, um, per session anyway. So even if you did go completely crazy and give your characters something that's worth you know a hundred thousand XP, they're never going to go up more than one XP, uh, one level anyway. You know, so if you give them some godlike um, uh, artifact um, just to see what happens, it's not going to break the game. It's not going to because they they can't gain more than one level per session anyway. So whatever class they're playing, it's never going to you know outpace it. And even if you are a little overly generous, uh, you know, with your your loot. There's worse things than having characters get a little bit more XP. It takes a while to go up uh, if you play those games. So, so that's one thing. The other thing is, I think my dog's going to go crazy in a second here. The other thing to consider is using a different type of XP system. So in Kevin Crawford's games in uh, um, Revised Stars Without Number, and maybe it's in Stars Without Number as well. I just I don't own that. I only have the revised version. But in Revised Stars Without Number in uh, Scarlet Heroes you have um, a XP system that just every session uh, the players gain one XP. And once you gain two XP, you hit second level. So after two sessions, you hit second level. After two or three more sessions, you'll gain third level. And then it slowly tapers off. You gain those first couple of levels fairly quickly, but then it tapers off. And I've been using that XP system in my Barrel Maze campaign since we switched over to the mashup of Revised Stars Without Number and Scarlet Heroes that I've been running for the last uh, six months or so. And that system has worked really, really well. Um, partly because there's steady advancement for the characters. You know, the, uh, they know by showing up and playing a session, you're going to be gaining, you know, getting closer to that next one. I'm using optional rules, so I'll gain double XP for people who are a level lower. So if you start playing, this was originally implemented to account for a character who died. So we had a, a player character who died, and I, I did want to have that player still go through the leveling process, not to start with a character that's equal to the same level as the rest of them. Not because to, to punish the player, but because I think that leveling process is really important for these games. Not only because it gives it an organic feel, and you do get a chance to see that character grow, like that's part of the fun of this of playing these games is seeing those characters development over time or develop uh, over time. Um, it's also because mechanically, you know, if you're only playing once a week or, or even once every two weeks, they're not going to memorize the, um, you know, they're not going to know these characters backwards and forwards. So if there's the more complicated the character is when they come into that character, the more likely you're going to waste time with them figuring out how to use those characters, figuring out what powers they have and, and stuff like that. So this is another, the other added benefit of doing that is that the, the player gets to learn the character mechanically better than, uh, you know, as they, they go through. 
And um, giving double XP just is is easy on those. It, it doesn't break the game. It means that you play a first level character. You'll only play, if you're playing with characters who are at least second level, they're going to hit level two after that first session. So you play once, you survive it, boom, you're up to second level. You play, you know, if you're playing with higher level characters than that, then one or two more sessions and boom, you're up to your next level. So, um, so and I love that. Like if uh, I, that will not work with a system where there are different XP tables because it's going to disproportionately favor the classes with the biggest XP costs, right? But what it does do for other games, games uh, uh, like, uh, you know, Starfinder or Pathfinder or, you know, those other, those Kevin Crawford games is it allows you to, for characters to sort of plan out their characters or players to plan out their characters. They will know what to expect uh, as rewards, as that level reward when it comes. And I, and I really do like the way it spaces it out. Um, you know, it, it uh, for players who are maximizing at the, or advancing at the optimized rate, you know, once you get to those mid-ranges, you do get a, enough sessions to play at those levels, but still go up. You know, you're still getting to actually enjoy the level advancement process. And, uh, you know, at some of those higher levels, you're going to be requiring uh, five, six sessions between, you know, uh, between levels. And that works out to about, um, if you're playing in a month, uh, you know, only twice a month, that's three months of play for, for one level, you know, at those mid-ranges. And that's, I think, appropriate. Like, I, I really enjoy those, that level range from about three to seven or three to, to eight and um, you know that that uh, survey that they did uh, when they were getting fifth uh, edition ready, that that seems to be kind of the happy range where most players really enjoy playing anywhere most campaigns are played in. So this allows you to do that the thing that you know old school players really like doing, which is start at first level and then level up your character, but not have to you know, spend too much time slogging at those low levels and just pining for the higher levels. In addition to, if you are a either stingy, you know, DM or, or you are not as, um, you know, um, not as inclined to, you know, give away a shit ton of XP uh, as characters level up, or you're like me and you just forget to do it, you know, or you get too interested in, in uh, the players occupying themselves with, uh, you know, whatever kind of small role-playing diversion or, or whatnot that uh, that you've come up with or that has emerged in the session, this ensures that there's going to be regular advancement. You know, um, Shadow of the Demon Lord has a more, much more regimented thing where it's every two, every adventure, you go up one level, you know, or alternatively, every session. You play a session, boom, you go up another level, making for an 11-session campaign. I love that in theory. In practice, it just doesn't suit the way I, I like playing. So this is a, a happy medium. And actually, maybe next time I run Shadow of the Demon Lord, that's what I'll do, is I'll just adopt that as the uh, the revised Stars Without Number experience process and use that as a way of leveling up. Huh. That's actually another good idea. So thanks, guys. I appreciate uh, letting me talk through to, uh, to that conclusion. So those are two kind of OSR considerations that will play into how you want to manage the... Um, the rewards that come or that are associated with leveling, you know, whether it's, um, you know, just flat experience points amounts that you're granting in those OSR, strict OSR games, or if you're playing a game where every class shares the same XP uh, chart and you do want to use XP, um, you could try using those. And the revised Stars Without Number rules are free. 
you can go actually Godbound. Godbound also uses that same chart. You can get a free art-free uh, version of Godbound. You can get a free art-free version of Revised Stars Without Number. Uh, both of those have those charts in them. And, and I mean, honestly, both of them are really fucking cool games anyway. So if you haven't checked those out, it's worth downloading those just to, to see what, uh, you know, uh, what ideas are in those two games. Because there's tons of awesome ideas in both of those games that you can uh, pillage for whatever kind of campaign you want. And it just uh, before I get I go on to the campaigns I've got in the hopper, because actually I'm going to talk about Revised Stars Without Number when I get to that. Um... Revised Stars of the Number has one of my favorite NPC generation things. They, they, Kevin Crawford had, uses quite often this idea of like a one roll. So you pick up a dice of each kind that you would typically use in a D&D game. D4, D6, D8, D10, D12, D20. Pick them all up, roll, drop all those dice, and then you use the, the results from that to determine something. A faction, um, an NPC, a, an adventurer, whatever. I use that for the first part of my uh, Barrel Maze campaign quite a bit. And it's awesome. Like, it alone is worth printing off, like, downloading the, P the free PDF, print off that one-roll NPC chart, and just having it sit on the side. So if players decide to fuck around in the tavern or, you know, decide to approach someone on the street or, or whatever, or you're just feeling you want to shake things up, one roll and then you suddenly have this interesting character who could, you know, and there's also one role adventure. So you could have those things to just, even just to get your imagination uh, firing. Re again, regardless of whatever game you're playing, you can adapt that stuff to fit whatever style of play you're, you're you know, leaning towards. So um, so anyway, I just wanted to, to add that addendum about um, level gains as, like for one thing to distinguish how, you know, the level as the reward obviously doesn't fit with OSR, a lot of OSR games, um, and to point you in the direction of that other option from Revised Stars Without Number uh, that sees regular XP progress but doesn't, you know, break it down into however many thousand per kill or per whatever. So anyway, so let's now turn on to the final topic, which is the campaign planning. What the heck am I going to play or run uh, on my Wednesdays? Okay, so there was a number of different uh, games that I had in mind that might be replacements for, for my Wednesday uh, Delta Green game, and then also as something that might fill our, our uh, Fridays. Like We typically had been playing um, every Wednesday for two hours, and then we also had been playing something every second Friday for four hours. And I, I've, I've subsequently changed up the uh, schedule a little bit, but I like, to be honest, like I'm a big loser, and I'm not going to be doing anything else on a Friday night. Like at the end of workday on Friday, the last thing I want to do is go out or whatever. So I, I like, you know, gaming on a, on a Friday night uh, anyway. And um, so what I sent around was a list. Here's the, the list I, I sent, just for the sake of uh, framing this. So these were the options that I set as um, things I'm considering, and I gave the rationale for why I was considering them. Um, first was uh, Pathfinder First Edition, which I had been having a ton of fun uh, both in my Iron Gods game and in this Innistrad Gothic Horror one-shot. It's a one-shot I ran as a... Um, it's actually gave me a two-shot because I'm running the second session tonight. Um, but it was a, uh, a game set It's a, in the Gothic Horror setting for the Magic the Gathering setting of Innistrad. Uh, I have the art book for that, and uh, I love it. And there was a, a supplement put out for it for, uh, for use with... Um, 
fifth edition D&D, but the, um, uh, the, I, I didn't really want to use fifth edition. I was really feeling uh, Pathfinder at the time, first edition. So I, I put together. from some of my players on that uh, of which ones would appeal to them which ones wouldn't and uh the it's, it's sort of narrowed down now to really being either uh or one of starfinder or pathfinder first edition uh, or adventure conqueror king uh, or possibly uh astonishing swordsmen and sorcerers of hyperborea at least as far as the players were were concerned the reason fifth edition dnd didn't get um picked is because they're they're playing it. a lot of my players are playing that and other stuff and and uh i'm to be honest i'm not really heartbroken that we're not going to be doing that because you know um I, I i tend not to run fifth edition on the channel anyway because uh it's you know there's everyone else is running that game so why not run something different and highlight some smaller you know games or games that aren't getting as much attention um so of those four I had another idea of using the random sector generation for revised stars without number 
and then just use that to run Starfinder to set up kind of a, a sandbox for people to play in. And I, I did that earlier this week, and I'm not the sensibilities I think of Revised Stars Without Number are just so different from how I'm seeing Starfinder work that it just wasn't. It didn't seem to work. That like the ideas that I came up with, the sector I came up with, was super fucking cool just trying to figure out how to present it in a way that is appropriate for Starfinder and still allowing me to play up the things that I think are cool about Starfinder is proving difficult. Like I think I may end up contorting it beyond the point of, of um, recognition. So there's really no point in using that kind of random sector generation system anyway. Um, so, Oh, and Revised Stars Without Number did get a, uh, a couple of votes as well, too, as being a potentially really cool thing. And it is a really awesome game. Like, I would run it using all the different, um, all the magic options and the psionic options and whatever. But, um, again, you know, the things that I'm really, thinking of the games that I'm really, really excited about, and thinking about the games where I can, um, you know, that I can reasonably run within the time uh, that I have to prep for my Wednesday sessions, knowing that that's going to be primarily what we'll be using it for. S the, again, that, that idea for a whole sector and whatnot, that's not realistic. That's not something I can run. And I've also recently sent out, I sent out an email to my players about our recent uh, Innistrad one-shot. And I said to the guys, because I was re-watching the game to prep for tonight's session, and I said, guys, is it just me or like, did this session really work? Like, Did it really just was, was firing on all things? Um, and if, it, if you agree with that, like, why do you think that is? What was it as a player, do you think, that really got you engaged? And I set out some of the ideas that I thought were my reasons for, you know, for why it worked really well. One of them is because I prepared the shit out of that game. Like, I, I prepared maps and NPCs and all the, uh, all the PCs I had written. They were all pre-gen, so I had all the PCs together. I had character sheets for all of them. I had in my mind what they could and could not do, what they might do, um... I had uh, combat maps for every, like battle maps for every things, uh, for every combat encounter in Roll20. I had l made sure I learned the rules for all the different monsters that I was going to encounter so I could really make sure that we could just keep things moving and play up the fun tactical depth of uh, Pathfinder combat. Um, it also, that particular session plays to what I think are both my interests and my strengths as a DM. You know, it was action, mystery, horror. And... All of those things are things that I love. You know, I love running a mystery campaign. I love the players trying to figure stuff out. But, I mean, the action component, the cinematic quality to the type of game I run, I think is an important part of me enjoying the game and also seeing it having a satisfactory game. If I'm not able to, to bring that, um, that part of my DM's tool set to play... Uh, then it's I'm maybe not enjoying it quite as much, um, but anyway, th but th that's those are the things I suggested, and the players um, responded that they, they agreed that it was different ways, and one of the ways that they s recommended or s suggested was uh, the story base. Like they said, like you know, I I enjoy the uh, Barrel Maze game, and it's fun playing that, but having an actual story that's evolving, that's unfolding, you know, that is something they uh, they they've really enjoyed, and. Uh, and I, so the, the difficulty is, is how do you do that and make it a manageable thing? How do you, how do you make a manageable campaign with minimal prep, but still doing story? Uh, well, that's when you, you know, enter uh, Mike Shea's Lazy Dungeon Master Guide, where it talks about the, the spiral as a way of 
constructing your campaign. So what he says is one way of designing the campaign is just, you know, figure where you're starting and then figure out the roads immediately out from there, metaphorically speaking, um, of, of where the story might go. Then let the players make the decisions. You've prepared what the next step is. And then once they're there, then you, you do the exact same thing. And you just keep building your campaign that way. You don't concern yourself with building the massive world and everything. You just start with one point and then you build out from there. To be honest, that's how I'm, I'm kind of managing my, uh, you know, my um, Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea campaign on Sundays. My Reavers of Tula campaign is very much like that. I have rough ideas of what is out there and what the factions are and whatnot and how I'm going to reward players and so forth with those factions. But it's not like I wrote a fucking source book for this stuff. I'm coming up with the rules as I need them. And that game is a total fucking joy to, to, to run. It is so easy to pick up. I can just have in my mind what I want to accomplish in that session or what likely is to happen and how I'm going to make that a satisfying, you know, beginning, middle, end session. Uh, so maybe the spiral idea is the way to approach whatever it is I'm going to run. Now, in terms of what I'm going to run, um, I've cut Astonishing Swordsman, or Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerers of Hyperborea is out because I think the players right now are craving something, if we're, especially if we're continuing on with our uh, um, start, you know, uh, Scott of Heroes version of uh, uh, Barrow Maze. Um, they are kind of craving something that's got a little more mechanical crunch to it. And they, the, the players really have enjoyed uh, playing Pathfinder um, in the mythic, with the mythic rules in it, I should say. They've, we've been playing with mythic rules, which means like the characters have a little more hit points. They've got ways to take extra actions. They've got a pool of resources that can you know, take extra actions that can boost their um, dice rolls, uh, that can uh, you know, trigger other special abilities that they get to pick as they gain more what are called mythic tiers, which are basically just like classes, but you know, concurrent with your regular class. It sounds really complicated, but it really isn't. It's it's really just uh, it's a, a formalized structure for using like action points or astonishing swordsmen or astonishing uh, uh, fortune points in uh, in the other games. And uh, um, and I've got the uh, I've got a online creator for the, or um, character creator for that and and monster creator and stuff uh, in the form of uh, Hero Lab. That uh, that's just amazing. Like it's super easy to throw together a character sheet or you know a monster sheet or whatever, and have all the rules print for me. I don't have to worry about tracking you know spells and other books and shit like that. So it's a great resource, and I spend a shit ton of time on my laptop anyway. So you know, sit in bed and, and kind of and honestly, it's something I love doing. Like that that reminds me a lot of the things that I thoroughly enjoyed about uh, fourth edition D&D, which was designing tactical encounters, you know, designing fun, interesting set piece encounters that make combat a fun and tactical experience. Now, I don't want to get into um, a discussion of fourth edition necessarily because it's, you know, it's it's a, a sticky wicket, uh, as they say. Uh, and I should probably devote an episode of the podcast to just talking about fourth because it's, I, I think there's a uh, I learned a lot from that game or that version of D&D and there's those lessons that I think that other designers like Pathfinder 2nd Edition and Starfinder uh, have learned from that that are helping and 5th and Edition D&D that um, are making for better and stronger games and more interesting and fun tactical experiences uh, in, uh, in D&D because I love combat in D&D. You know, I don't want my campaign to only be about that but I fucking love combat in D&D. It's fun. Um, 
or it should be at least. And uh, anyway, um, so uh, boy, I got lost in my thought about uh, fourth edition D and D. But what I'm thinking is that uh, Pathfinder actually might be a good choice. Uh, so we that's something with more crunch to it. I love the books. Like I love sitting around and reading. Uh, some of the neat little mini games or sub rules they've come up with, like there's you know the ultimate intrigue book has cool rules for um, intrigue. I don't like the rules for intrigue combat necessarily because that's that's a little or social combat that makes role playing a little too just a matter of dice rolls uh, for my liking. But I do love um, improvised dice challenges. There's some fun rules for running heists, so you could really make an actual game out of and a you know a cinematic game out of running a, a heist or, you know, like stealing from a noble or something like that or breaking into a um, an evil organization's lair and stuff like that. Uh, there's great rules for organizations. There's um, good rules for uh, reputation uh, in there as well. Uh, the Ultimate Wilderness game has... Um, oh, and there's great rules for research too, for libraries, for making libraries and, and researching an actual kind of mini game and things that could... It makes an adventure out of out of that kind of activity, which is cool. And I, anything that's going to make um, you know make something for a variety. I don't need everything to be mechanically complicated. But what is interesting is having those those options as ideas for making fun, you know, games and uh, out of certain and making adventures out of certain activities. You know, it, it's it makes your those library rules make it so that. You know, um, doing research in town is not just busy work or relegated to downtime. It's It can be a fun, interesting um, exercise itself. And those rules help you make that interesting. It's, it's, not, the, it's not necessary by any means, but it helps. Um, the other option is Starfinder because Starfinder is one of those games where, uh, boy, is it easy to run. Like, it's the, the rules for setting target numbers, for... Um, creating monsters for reskinning monsters is insanely easy. And there's so many ideas that you can incorporate in that. Like it's, it's just bonkers how many different ideas and concepts you can fit into that, uh, that, that's, uh, th those sensibilities. The difficulty I was having though is how to run that as a, something like as a manageable week by week thing. One of the ways that has recently helped with that is that I, I signed up for the online uh, or Hero Lab online service for Starfinder. So I've got, I can create characters super easily, create monsters super easily, or just like download monster stats super easily. So so that's really easy. It makes prep really easy. And again, it reminds me of, you know, messing around with the old fourth edition D&D online tools. I love that stuff. Um, and then the other option is, uh, uh, or the other, the other reason, I guess, is that it gives some really, uh, it's really easy for me to track uh, character advancement. If I if I adopt the um, the rules for um, or the the XP pro progress chart for uh, what the heck's it called for revised stars without a number, that will give me a way of seeing these characters advance in a regular timely fashion without having to track the XP of monster kills or you know level achievements. It just the weird. Um, experience I've had so far uh, with that is I had a really fun uh, encounter in our first session that uh, 
uh, first section is Starfinder, uh, that where you know the characters encounter some really powerful monsters. And the way I had structured it was that it really they were really unlikely to ever actually face these things. They were sort of peripheral to them. But if I awarded XP, they did defeat them. So if I did award XP as intended or as, as rules as written, it would have been way more XP than they should have than than, than what would reflect the actual challenge of the scenario. Um, and similarly, there's other times where, like, we spent the whole session last time in this really cool co- Starship combat encounter, but they got no, I mean, they got, relatively speaking, very little XP for it, because it was only really one combat encounter that, that lasted the entire session. So, th- for that reason, I think maybe adopting the, um, re- the, the sort of flat 1 XP per level thing will just make it a better, um, a better game. And then also, people who play more... Um, they're going to see more benefit. They're going to they're see a, a reward that doesn't disproportionately favor them over other players, but puts them at, you know, they get to enjoy the cool shit at higher levels faster than anyone else who plays. Um, upside to that, too, is uh, the there are online resources to access all the rules from Starfinder. Same thing with Pathfinder 1st Edition. Um, is you can, you know, you can access uh, all of the Pathfinder rules online at, uh, at a website. Because they're all, both of them were released as OGL uh, games. Um, so the, but the other two options that I thought of, the Revised Stars Without Number, or rather the uh, Adventure Conquer King and um, Axe. Axe is just not going to work because my players want something that's got more, um, tech, more customization for the characters, mechanically speaking. Um, and we're already playing another OSR game uh, in the mix. And uh, I think... Adventure Conquer King is, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if my players will be kosher with the, the slow advancement. I know my players want uh, to play kind of heroes. And also, I mean, I'm running so many other fantasy games right now anyway, I guess. Um, so maybe that's another strike against it. And, and the game that seems to be the, the strongest contender right now is Starfinder. It's been just trying to grapple with how the heck am I going to structure that uh, campaign to make it a viable drop-in, drop-out game the same way that I did my Barrow Maze game. And I, um, I think that the way I'm going to do it, if I decide on Starfinder, is with the um, Spiral. I just need to figure out what my starting point is and where potentially it could go. And then I'm going to use as many of the sandbox rules as I can adapt from, not the sector generation, from, uh, uh, what do you call it, from um, Revised Stars Without Number. And I guess here's another reason why I kind of, after I created this, you know, it is a really interesting sector. It's got some, those rules are very, very cool for Revised Stars Without Number. Is that by favoring the sensibilities and and the things from Revised Stars Without Number, I'm not incorporating a ton of the great stuff that's there and easily accessible for Starfinder. Every Starfinder adventure that comes out every month, and I'm signed up for the adventure subscription for it, every single one of them has at least one new planet and a handful of new monsters. And a lot of them are incredibly interesting and incredibly thematic. And it's shit that like, wow, I really want to put this into my game. And one advantage that Starfinder has over you know, a fantasy game is that you can just hop in your starship and get there. The way that the rules are set up for Starfinder for travel is um, is basically that things are either, you know, it's, it's like abstracted uh, range 
in in a lot of uh, modern games like uh, Conan 2D20 and uh, the Star Wars uh, Fantasy Flight games. Um, you know, close, short, medium, long. That's kind of what the ranges are. Is it in the same system? It's going to take you this long to travel. Is it uh, an, um, a satellite of the orbit? Well, then it's going to take you this long. Is it a near space? Then it's going to take you this long. If it's in the vast, in like the really far away, it's going to take you this long to get there. So all you really need to you know, know is that the place exists and how far away it is. And you can get to any of those. That allows you to constantly add this new content and not have to be like, well, we're going to uproot our campaign and travel, you know, three months or whatever to get to this new city. You can just boom, get it there and throw this stuff in. And for a space opera kind of science fantasy game like Starfinder, that's exactly what you want is this crazy, you know, um, world hopping thing where like one day they're on this planet that's a desert that has links to the earth and fire elemental plane and then the next one you want to be on some kind of you know um robot you know utopia and then the one after that you want to be you know delving into a gas mining operation that's deep inside a gas giant occupied by flying magic whales you know like it's just um the idea of embracing the wildly um varied an incredibly wide open setting that is the Starfinder game. That that's something that I think I need to leave open and not just um, limit by having a a specific sandbox. So where the heck do we start? I mean, I guess the easiest thing to do would just start it in Absalom Station, like the the sort of central hub for everyone. And I guess you know if I just want to make it easy. I make it part of the Starfinders. Starfinders is the Starfinder Society is an organization within the the game that just lets them. You know, encourages them to go out and explore the world. You know, and they they sponsor operations and, and expeditions that that do that kind of stuff. So there's my organization that favors them. But to not force it on them, maybe what I do is I take the rules from Ultimate Intrigue that I like about factions and organizations and stuff like that, and tailor it or customize it to fit for Starfinder. So that way, and the other thing I guess. I have to incorporate into Starfinder is an option for in-game currencies for uh, things like Astonishing Fortune. I think we in our last session we just called them Nova Points, so uh, which you could use to re-roll or whatever. So that isn't a feature of uh, Starfinder at present. They don't have an actual uh, rule set for using like hero points or stuff. But that's what we could do: is have Nova Points be my in-game resource, so I can spend those, give those to players to. So they can re-roll or, or, you know, whatever. They can have some control over uh, the, um, vari- you know, uh, the variations of uh, dice rolls. Uh, and it gives me a way of rewarding in-game play. I can use the revised Stars Without Number XP system. So I don't have to worry about tracking like what they kill or whatever else. I just have to focus on making the game fun and uh, letting the passage of time take care of the level advancement. Um... I use the intrigue set for, uh, or intrigue rules for rewarding influence with different organizations. So if we're role-playing heavily with, say, the Knights of Golarion or the Hell Knights or the Starfighter Society or the, there's an, like an android, you know, separation league. I can't remember what it's actually called in, in the game, but that, you know, could be there. Um... So there's there's another way of, of incentive or rewarding the, the players uh, from playing for is by with um, you know increased influence with these different organizations. 
And finally, loot. Like, loot is just bonkers in, um, in Starfinder because, uh, you know, you, like, you do have to accept that because loot is and gear is based by level or gear to level, it's just going to all, like, if you focus too closely on it, it's, it's going to take you out of the game. It's going to break the immersion in the world. But if you ignore that stuff and just, you know, give yourself what I'm currently thinking is, like, use a D3 and say that, you know, my randomly generated gear, and I have to put together random generation tables, but my randomly generated gear will fall in the level band of uh, three. I'll use a D6, and I'll go potentially up by three tiers, down by three tiers. So if you're a level five character, you could find anything between second and eighth level as, um, you know, as your stuff. And if I really want to make it wild, I say, okay, well, you can, um, you know, you can find stuff between... Um, you know, uh, between a certain level, but then there's going to be a small percentage chance that it's going to be even higher level. So maybe there's that off chance, that sort of old school thing that we actually had happen in our Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerers campaign recently, which was the characters found this plus four cloak, uh, resist- or cloak of resistance, which in that game gives plus four to saves, plus four to armor class. So it's this insanely great magical item. And it was just a random, you know, encounter. They found it in a, in a, uh, in a cave. A random uh, uh, treasure, and that's uh, that's part of the fun of that, uh, you know, that system is these random loot drops that are suddenly amazing, you know, and uh, and that's I think that that would be fun to try in uh, in Starfinder, you know, the 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 things that are more powerful they use up more resources and are more expensive to maintain, so it's not like it's going to forever break the game, but you know, if a player is cruising around at level five and he happens to find you know, a level 10 blaster that's got uh, some shots in it still. Like, oh boy, like that's, that's, that character is going to love that thing and will probably be very judicious in the use of it because it's going to be expensive to replace the, uh, the resources in that or replace the, uh, um, the uses of, of that thing. Um, so yeah, so I guess that's where I'm, where I'm at right now. I'm, I'm kind of, I still haven't figured on what the actual campaign is going to be about, because I need to find a, a hook that both will, you know, support a bunch of different types of play, but also will incorporate that story-driving thing. I don't want it to just be, we show up each week and we go to a new planet. There's got to be something more to it, because I'd like to, if the players are saying they want to see more story progress with our campaigns, then I want to give them that, and try it, and it'll be a nice uh, counterpoint to my uh sandbox games that I'm running for, for some, uh, some of the other sessions. Um, so I don't quite have that yet, but that's sort of where I'm at is, is thinking that a game that is a spiral where all I'm planning is what happens two weeks down the road. I just need to figure out for that one session, what's going to happen. And then in that session, whatever happens, that will tell me what I need to prep for the next one. Starfinder is an easy enough game to to run on the fly. The, the monsters aren't particularly uh, complex, so it's easy to pick out the book and run them out of that. Um, characters are more complex, but where complexity comes... I'm going to do an episode of the podcast a little later talking about complexity because I've, I've been thinking about that quite a bit the last little while as well. Complexity versus ease of access, speed of play versus tactical depth kind of stuff. Um, but I, I mean, where... Some see complexity, others see wealth of options, you know, that, that there's many different little things you get to make a decision about that will have a consequence on your, on your player. And 
ultimately, th that is a matter of taste. You know, the, the degree to which you can put up with complexity of characters. For me, Pathfinder is fine. For me, um, Starfinder is fine. Rollmaster is... I need a spreadsheet, you know? Like, it, it's pretty... It's a pretty fucking complicated game. And that might be... Um, to run, for sure, is beyond my level of comf uh, of comfort. Um, to play, probably not. I mean, I, I intend to return to Rollmaster later in the year. But um, but as an example, like that, that's uh, more complex for me. For other people, it's different things. You know, for other people, Pathfinder is Mathfinder. Starfinder is probably Mathfinder as well, with ray guns. You know, uh, so it's it's more game than what some people, you know, people feel are necessary. Um, but, you know, for me, uh, I like something with a little more meat on its bones. You know, something with a little more structure, which is, to be honest, one of the reasons why I like Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerers of Hyperborea and Axe as my preferred OSR games, because both of those have fairly crunchy combat systems and... Um, pretty crunchy character creation systems as well, too. Ash is more Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerers of Hyperborea is more on, this, on the, the variety of choice end because there's just so many different classes to choose from. And Axe is uh, Adventure Conquer King is more on the complexity of character generation, like the, the, if you're deciding to create your own class. And then also the, um, the advancement of your character and, and your gaining of... Uh, um, like non-adventuring resources, you know, developing your, your kingdom or, or what have you as you uh, adventure. So, but that's stuff I love. Like, I know those are crunchy games that uh, just happen to be OSR games. So, so that's kind of what I'm leaning towards right now as a potential replacement. I think it'll satisfy me in it more than what the Delta Green game did, and it will satisfy my players a little more because it gives us a different type of game to play, sci-fi and fantasy more than just, um, what do you call it? more than just, uh, you know, modern day horror stuff. Um, I'm probably going to lean into the horror element of it because there's some really great horror stuff that you can incorporate into uh, the uh, Starfinder game, particularly with, uh, you know, the uh, Plane of Shadow and there's demons and there's, you know, um, the chitin demons, which are kind of like, they present them as like sci-fi versions of like the... Um, whatever they're called, the from um, Hellraiser, the the demons from that. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's where, what I'm planning right now and why I'm thinking that. I'm thinking that all those different reward structures that, I've been th that I have been considering, those are things I can put into play and hopefully make it a improvised kind of story way in, a, in the way that I was intending to run Delta Green. Delta Green was intended to be an improvised game that was going to sort of go where the players went. Um, this will allow me to incorporate more of those other things and aspects of character reward, character incentives that I like about games in a setting that I think will be a lot of fun to explore. So, so that's why I'm leaning towards Starfighter. Once I get uh, ideas formalized for that, I'll give you an update on it. But that's where I am right now. I'm still probably a week or so off from, uh, or at least maybe two weeks from actually having that together. But it feels like it's getting very close to crystallizing. So that's where I think I'm at for that. So that's where we are in terms of what's going to replace the Wednesday and uh, possibly the Friday games. Now, let's talk about call-ins. Okay, so that is a um, pretty full <laughs> episode. Uh, so maybe we'll, um, what I'll end on is um, 
with the call-in, from the call-in. And uh, before I do so, I will, um, I'll just say that, uh, as always, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns regarding this, please don't hesitate to um, shoot me a message on Anchor, uh, to shoot me a, a tweet on Twitter. I am there at Dungeon Musings. You can find me on the YouTube channel as well, the Dungeon Musings YouTube. Um, Dungeon Musings YouTube channel. I don't know why I said YouTube as if it's a thing. So I'm apparently channeling an 80-year-old man right now. Um, you can also reach me uh, by email. And my email address is dungeonmusings at gmail.com. Last thing I'll say is um, I'll leave us on this call-in from Colin. Uh, I, I have received uh, quite a few other call-ins, uh, and I do need to do an actual call-in show and respond to everyone um, individually, so I, I, I plan to do that in future. My apologies for this. It's just uh, Colin is one of my uh, players in uh, my Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea um, campaign, and I was teasing him that I, I appreciated his call-in, but uh, it, I posting or rather sharing your own, um, you know, just favorable uh, call-in messages um, it always seemed a little self-serving, but he said uh, he would do it anyway. So I'm making like Spike Pit, and I am sharing my own self-promotion. So Colin, thank you so much for the kind words. I'm having a ton of fun with you as a player in our Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea campaign. And if you may uh, check, if you check the uh, most recent episode of the um, um, the YouTube campaign, uh, at, at least at the time of recording, you have been specifically called out as a particularly awesome player. So congrats on that. Otherwise, thanks so much for listening, folks. Um, and happy gaming. Hi, Kevin, Colin, Spike Pit here. Just calling in to say, really enjoying what you're doing, man. Your energy, your enthusiasm. It's uh, a great example of what the hobby should be man enthusiasm like minds people being tolerant of different opinions and i really enjoyed your last musings i don't think we probably see eye to eye but that is not an issue but i'll tell you what that ash game I'm, i reckon we see eye to eye there i'm having so much fun it's a great group of players i think you're running a blinding session and i thank you for all your efforts take care bro and I almost forgot, I wanted to say that I didn't think you was being at all negative in uh, in what you were saying about 5e and Pathfinder and that. Uh, I think sometimes you can imagine that. It, it came across as uh, really positive, I thought.